God, I just pray for Andrew now, Lord. Thank you for him, Lord. I just pray that you would, uh, God, just bless us through him now. And I pray that you would just send your Holy Spirit to teach us, God. That anointing that you give each of us, God, I pray that you would, uh, God, just be a voice to our hearts, Lord. Whatever we need to hear, God, you know it. And so, God, I pray that you would just fill our hearts and minds, God, with you and your glory, God. Just set our eyes to the cross and then uh, to you with your goodness and grace. Lord, I pray that, um, God, you would just use your word now to just um, pierce us, Lord, and um, God, just bring us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, I'm on, right? Okay, good. Very, very good. Very, very good. So if I were to ask you, what is the kingdom of God all about? If I were to say, in one sentence, what the kingdom of God is all about, what would you say to me? Huh? Anything you want. What would you say the kingdom of God is all about? Say again. Okay. Okay, love, good. What else? Bringing the world back Submission to God and correct order. Good. We got some theologians in the house. Overcoming curses by blessing. Overcoming curses by blessing. Good. What do you have? Going back to reality, the real reality. Instead of the fake reality. Oh, they're both good. So in uh, Romans chapter 14, Paul sums up what the kingdom of God is. And in Romans 14, verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Heather, why are you going like this with Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when Paul was challenged to, to give us his synopsis of what it meant to be part of the kingdom of God, he had it down in three words. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when we say uh, the kingdom of God for the sake of the city, what we're saying is we want to transform the city into a place of righteousness, peace, and joy. Now, there is a certain food group in the Old Testament that is linked with joy and gladness. What would that be, Kyle? Huh? Right. The scripture says that God gave us wine for what purpose? To make the heart of man glad. Okay. You're like, what does this have to do with anything? This is my introduction for John chapter 2. John chapter 2. This is literally going to be the first time I've ever preached this sermon in my entire life. This is a... a everybody knows the Gospel of John is my favorite Gospel in the New Testament. Um, but I generally uh, skip this part as far as preaching and teaching. I've actually literally never even taught on this passage. Because honestly, uh, I was just kind of like, eh, insignificant, uh, which it's the Bible, so that's wrong already. But John chapter 2 contains a very, very interesting story. 
And usually this story is only brought up in the, in the jihad between Roman Catholics and Protestants. And Catholics go sing, Protestants go well, and... Okay, here we go, John chapter 2. And in the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus does a miracle, it's not only called a miracle, it's called a sign. So Jesus' miracles are not just regular miracles, they're a sign of something, they're pointing to something. So for example, we talked about the man born blind last week. And we talked about how the irony of the fact that even though he was physically blind, he had more spiritual insight than the, than the Pharisees who were persecuting him. So all of Jesus' miracles in the Gospel of John were a sign of something. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when he multiplied the bread, right? And then he says, I am the bread of life. The multiplication of the bread was a sign of something. So in John chapter 2, we find Jesus at a party, actually. Some of you might be surprised to note that Jesus is introduced in the Gospel of John in a party. He is. In a very long one, actually. He's at a wedding. Now, Jewish weddings at the time were not like our regular boring weddings that you have an hour and a half of whatever and lots of ceremony. They were actually a week-long party. So it was a ton of food and, yes, a ton of wine. Now we catch Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now immediately, because of Brian, you catch this phrase, on the third day. So if we say that Jesus' miracles were all a sign of something then we can see immediately there's some significance to what John is saying. John is saying that whatever miracle that Jesus is doing happened on the third day, which says to me that there is something about the resurrection that's being prefigured here. Because what day did Jesus rise from the dead? Day three. Very, very good. Everybody's trapped with me. So on the third day, Jesus was... There at a wedding in Cana, Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. This tells me a couple things. Number one, it was not Jesus' wedding. He was there as a guest. What does this tell us? This tells us that Jesus lived the type of life among the people that he was with, that they invited him to their parties. They invited him to their functions. The wedding was an extremely happy time. And when you're happy, you want to be around people that make you happy. So when they were figuring out who they wanted to invite, they said, that Jesus guy, bring him, he's got to come. What does this tell us about the personality of Christ? Well, a lot of times when you watch videos of, of Jesus or, or movies of Jesus, he's kind of floating around, like not human, like just kind of, Ugh. and people only talk to him about theology or whatever. This tells me, because Jesus is not mentioned as being a family member of this guy. He was a local. So this tells me that Jesus was a type of individual where if you were celebrating, you would want him around. Now let me ask you a question. As a Christian, you're supposed to be a light to the world. You're supposed to be an example to your friends. All of that is true. But are you the type of person that people would invite to a party? And secondly, are you the type of person that would go to said party? Now, obviously, we're in downtown Lewiston, uh, so there might be some trouble in your background with going to certain parties, but you get my meaning. 
think a lot of times in Christianity we confuse holiness with being boring. Those are not the same thing. Jesus was not a boring individual. Jesus was an absolutely compelling individual that when you wanted to celebrate, you brought him along. So there's Jesus. He's at the party. It's popping. It's the third day. The mother of Jesus was there as well. So Mary and Jesus are there. And in this discussion, you're going to see the interplay between Jesus and Mary because it's extremely interesting. Now, we know as Christians that Jesus Christ is God, but that he also took on a human nature when he came down here. And as to his human nature, Mary was his mother. Now, in my opinion, Roman Catholics take it too far and begin praying Mary and worshiping Mary, but we have overreacted on the other side and acted like Mary wasn't important in the life of Christ at all. Untrue. She was extremely important to him. So Jesus and his mother, they're like, all right, we're going to this party. Verse 2, Jesus is also invited to the wedding, because he's popular, with his disciples. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, now, what did I say? These weddings were not like one-hour, two-hour reveals. These, things are, these are things that went on for days. So you can imagine if somebody didn't plan properly, you could run out of wine. This is what happens in the hood. You say, hey, I'm going to have a party. All right, can so-and-so come along? Yeah, just bring one of your friends. So then you call your other friend, and you're like, well, can so-and-so come along? Okay, only one person. And then like nine people come from one invitation. Well, this is what happened to this poor guy. Everybody showed up at the party. Everybody wants a hookup. You know, back in the day when we used to go clubbing, I don't anymore. But we, you, we would have to bring your own stuff. <laughs> okay, bring your own stuff. Don't expect anybody to buy anything for you. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm seeing the nods. Okay, we're tracking. So this was not one of those parties. It wasn't a bring your own stuff thing. It was up to the host to make sure that everybody was taken care of. So when folks started showing up, this guy's like, all right, I got this, I planned for this. 300 extra people show up, I don't know the number, but you understand, too many people showed up and the wine ran out. Now there's a problem. Because these are small towns like Lewis and Auburn. And unfortunately, what happens in small towns is there's a lot of talk. So here's what this guy's thinking, he's scared to death, because he goes, look, I just ran out of wine, Everybody's going to go home and say, man, I can't believe we went to that guy's party. You got anything happen you want. How embarrassing. And then for the next four months, everybody would have been giving this dude the shoe face. Like, how could, you show, how could we show up to your party and you don't have enough wine? How embarrassing. So this guy is really panicking right now. So look what happens. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So Jesus' mother is close enough to the circumstance and she is close enough to the situation and she's analyzing and she's realizing that they don't have any wine left. And so what she does is she turns to Jesus and says, hey, they're out of wine. Now why or oh why would Mary say that to Jesus? Jesus is just a guest. He's not responsible to provide any wine to anybody. He's just a guest. Why is Mary turning to Jesus and saying that? Could it be that Mary understands that Jesus has supernatural powers? See, Jesus went around for 30 plus years and nobody essentially knew who he was, but his mother did. 
You see, she gave birth to Jesus while being a virgin. She knew from the beginning that Jesus was not just a regular human being. No doubt, probably, she had seen Jesus work miracles in his childhood. Possibly there's stories about that in the early church. They're not in the Bible because they're not validated. But you see the point. Mary knew something about her son that other people did not know. This is one of the things that makes Mary special. Because while everybody else in the world was just going along, she knew that her son was not like anyone. And so Jesus' mom turns to him and says they have no wine. Now, she makes no request of Jesus. She doesn't say, Jesus, I need you to fix this problem. All she does is present the problem to Jesus. You know, many times when you're in a bad situation and you cry out to God and you go, I just got fired. There are a lot of things that we don't understand as prayers that are actually prayers. Like, there isn't a formula to what a prayer is. Sometimes when you cry out to God and all you do is state the problem, from an outsider it looks like you're complaining, but God counts that as a prayer. So here's Mary, and she goes to Jesus, and all she does is state the plot problem. She doesn't say, you need to come up with a solution. All she does is state the problem. Look how Jesus responds to her. Woman, what does this have to do with me? This is where the non-Catholics go, see? Jesus just said, woman, what does this have to do with me? Well, actually, the term woman, when Jesus uses it, is a term of endearment. Um, you see this in John chapter 4, with the woman at the well, he calls her woman. Or the woman caught adultery, he calls her woman. Jesus uses the term woman so that he can speak respectfully to women in his area. Now look, in Jesus' time, women were not honored very much. As a matter of fact, the, uh, in the court system, for example, the testimony of a woman would not be accepted as a valid testimony. It was half as valid as the testimony of a, as a man. They were in an extremely sexist environment. And so Jesus uses the term woman all throughout the Gospel of John to exalt women back to their position. Remember, the first woman, Eve, was called woman at the creation. So to Jesus, this is Jesus essentially treating every woman he runs into as if it was Eve. So he says to her, woman, this is affection. What does this have to do with me? Now Jesus has a point, doesn't he? Because he's just a guest. He's not the master of ceremonies. He's not even related by family. On a human level, he has nothing to do with this situation. What does this have to do with me? And then look what he says. My hour has not yet come. What does he mean? He's saying, Mom, it's not time for me to go public as being like a super duper miracle worker. It's not my time to do that yet. So why are you trying to put me in a position where I do some amazing, crazy miracle in front of all these people? Jesus is gently rebuking her and reminding her that the power that God gave him wasn't so that he could do an extra favor for people on the side. It was for a very specific purpose. The reason he has those powers is to bring him to what's called the hour. Now, all through the Gospel of John, 
Jesus keeps talking about the hour. And the hour actually is the time that leads him to the cross. So for example, in John chapter 8, the Jews tried to stone him, and it says he got away from them because his hour had not yet come. Or in John chapter 17, the night before he gets crucified, he looks to heaven and says, Father, the hour has come, meaning it's time for me to die. So Jesus is saying all the miracles that he performed put in motion everything that brought him to get crucified. So Jesus is saying, Mary, you're trying to speed up the time. And many of us are like this. Like we know that God is powerful. So when we see a situation, we see a crisis, we say, hey, God, there's a crisis if you didn't realize. And we have no thought process as to what God's timetable is. Have you ever thought about that? Like, have you ever thought that maybe the situation that you're in isn't getting solved immediately because the hour for it to get solved has not arrived yet? Is that possible? And Jesus is responding to her request by saying, it is not time yet for me to do what I need to do. Jesus is looking through the lens of the big picture. Mary's looking at the lens of what's immediately in front of her. Do you have a big picture view of your life or the life of your friends or the life of the people that you're praying for? Or are you just reacting to all the situations that are in front of you? You know, unstable people always react to what's in front of them. Unstable people, and I'm not saying this to insult you in any way, shape, or form. I'm saying this to help you become a stable person. Unstable people are always reacting to the situation in front of them. And it is always an emergency. It is always on 10, all the time. I used to imagine Mary. And she goes up to Jesus, and I don't think she said it quietly and calmly. They have no wine. I think she was saying, they have no wine. Okay, the fire alarm fire, everything is an emergency. Are you that type of person where every next situation that happens in your life is a giant emergency? You see, Jesus from the beginning knew what the end game was for him. Now, obviously, Jesus had advantages that we didn't. For example, I can't look in the Bible and find prophecies about my life. Okay? Jesus could. So he had certain advantages that we didn't have. I will give you that. But have you even inquired to God about what his plan for your life is? Have you even inquired to God when you run into these crazy trials and these fire alarms as to what he's trying to do in your life? Don't you realize that whatever God's big picture plan for you is, everything that happens in the interim is designed to bring you to your hour. Because all of us in here have an hour. Like the moment when you say, this is the reason that I came into the world. That's what Jesus said to Pilate in John chapter 18. He said, for this reason I came into the world, to testify about the truth. Do you know why you've come into the world? If you don't know why you've come into the world, you will never know what your hour is. And if you don't know what your hour is, you're going to be reacting to everything that comes in front of you as if it's an alarm. This is the reason why even if a problem gets solved in your life, you're still crazy because life happens to you tomorrow. Life will always happen to you. If you look at these, you know, like I used to do puzzles. I don't really do them because I'm not smart like Kyle and Dorian. Like Kyle and Dorian can do puzzles, and they look at all the separate pieces, and they go, 
in their mind it's already solved. I'm not that guy. But if you open a thousand piece puzzle and you put them all on a table and you're only looking at the individual little pieces of the puzzle, you will lose your mind. Now what do you do if you're smart as far as puzzles go? You take the box and you say, this is what the picture is supposed to look like. And so this is what I'm going to do with the pieces. That's how Jesus lived his life. Every time he saw a little puzzle piece, a problem, he's like, okay, how does this compare to the big picture of what I'm supposed to do? And then he acted. But if you live your life without looking at that big picture, you're going to lose your mind. So Jesus says, Mom, remember the picture. This is the picture. Stay focused on the picture. Listen to how she responds to him. Mary is a genius. I love Mary. Listen to what she says. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she looks at it she goes, I got it, Jesus. That's fine. But in her mind, she goes, there's no way in the world that Jesus, with the full knowledge that there is a problem, is just going to leave the problem as is. So she looks at her son and goes, okay, Jesus. And then she goes to the servants and says, anything he tells you to do, do it. Don't ask any questions. Don't say anything. Don't say anything is word. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. This tells me that Mary was supremely confident in the heart of her son. She was confident that Jesus would find some way, even though it wasn't his hour, even though it wasn't his time for him to do some amazing public miracle, she said to herself, there's no way that my Jesus is going to allow a party to go on without any wine. Now, I want you to understand something. I want you to pull back. Some of us are getting it. I want you to see how crazy this is. This is not like, this is not like life and death. This is not like leprosy. This is not like somebody's paralyzed. The only problem that's happening right now is that we're running out of alcohol. Yes, the wine in Jesus' day was alcoholic. I'm sorry. Yeah, you got some crazy, eh, crazy. I love them. But you'll have some Christians that will say, well, the, the wine that Jesus drank was grape juice. Not true. The scripture tells you not to be drunk with wine. You can't get drunk on grape juice. Believe me, some of you probably tried. Come on, dude. <laughs> so, so Jesus, so Mary knows that, think about this. Mary knows that Jesus is so loving that he cares about minor details like a party being fueled by wine. And she knows that it would trouble Jesus so much that this guy can't have a good time at his party that even though it's not time, he's still going to find a way to make it happen. So she goes to the service. She doesn't argue with her son. She doesn't argue. She doesn't go into a back and forth. She just says, okay, and then tells the servants to do exactly what Jesus tells them to do. Now, I'm sure many of you are probably suspecting that Jesus is going to work some miracle. But how many of us take our mother Mary's advice, which is do whatever Jesus tells you to do and don't ask any questions? You know, when Jesus tells you to do something, what does that mean? It means you get a prompting from the spirit of Jesus. And you don't even have to belong to Jesus to get a prompting from Jesus. Jesus can tell you, go talk to that person. 
And instead of doing exactly what Jesus tells you to do, what do you do? Well, hmm. Jesus will tell you, I want you to give that person randomly some money. Eh. And you and Jesus start having a conversation about what you're supposed to do. As if you have that right. <laughs> that actually goes along with the servant. Jesus is like, I want you to go serve this person. You go, is there something else I can do for you, Jesus? <laughs> we're very polite in the way that we disobey God, aren't we? We're very polite and very spiritual in the way that we argue. Some of you might be saying, I'm not even a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. You still need to obey Jesus. So when he tells you to do something, do you do it with no questions? Or... Do you have all your discussions? Here, here's, here's one example. I'm going to start embarrassing people. We were watching the show AD, and in one of the shows, the person gets baptized, and then Chloe's out with one of her people, and she goes, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait till my birthday and get baptized. Beautiful, very poetic. You know what happened? Jesus said, nah, I want you to do it earlier. So they're sitting there. And they got baptized earlier. Was it a couple minutes before 12 o'clock? That is what God is going for. You have a plan. It makes perfect sense. It would be so poetic to get baptized on my birthday. Jesus is like, no. I want you to get baptized a few minutes before your birthday for a million reasons you don't even know about. One of which was so that I could talk about this as an example of obedience. You didn't know that was going to happen when you obeyed. So what happens? Mary tells these people and us, do whatever he tells you. You know, that's the other thing about puzzle pieces. You don't know what the picture of your million-piece puzzle is supposed to look like. See, that's the problem. Remember I said that Jesus had an advantage? Jesus' advantage was he always had that in front of him. Our disadvantage is that Jesus still has our picture in front of him. We don't. So this is what faith is. You know what faith is? Faith is you saying to God, okay, you're the one with the puzzle picture, so wherever you tell me to put those pieces, I'm going to do it and not worry about it. Because you know how the puzzle's supposed to look. You know what disobedience is? Disobedience is you say, nah, I got this, Jesus. You, you got the wrong picture. I got the right picture, so I'm going to put the pieces where I think they should go. That's called ruining your life. That's ruining your life. Faith is you telling Jesus, I'm going to put the pieces wherever you tell me, no questions asked, because you're the only one that knows the picture. Did you hear what I said? He's the only one. Not me. Not your pastor. Not your favorite counselor. Not your whatever. Not your fill in the play. Nobody knows what your puzzle picture looks like except for Jesus. So he's the only one that can tell you where to put him. Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So there's six water jars, and remember, there is a reason for everything that Jesus does. 
They're water jars, they're very big, and they're holding water for what? Purification. Okay, so the Old Testament law had all these steps of purification that you had to take to cleanse yourself. And so in these waters that were designed for purification, these jars symbolize the old way of doing things. The old law. Now, was the old law bad? No, the old law was awesome because it came from God. Here's the thing about the old law, though. It was designed to fade away. It was designed to become obsolete because something better was on the way. Namely, Christ. Now, John set this up for us. He said the law came through Moses. He's the one that came the old law. But what? Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So what Jesus brought is better than what the old law brought. But the old law brought purification with water. Because the major issue throughout the book of Leviticus is about being clean versus unclean. And if you read the book of Leviticus, you will end up be, becoming obsessed with whether or not you're clean or unclean. Some of you are like that. Some of you are obsessed with being clean or unclean. You feel dirty. You feel impure. You feel defiled. So the majority of your life, all of your decisions get made on the fact that you feel unclean. Now here's a question. Is that the mindset that God wants you to have? Is, is, is worrying every single day and night about how clean and unclean you are, is that the mindset that God wants you to be bound to? What, what state of mind or state of heart does God want us bound to? Maybe we'll see in this text. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Now this doesn't make any sense. Because remember, at this point, these guys only see Jesus as just some regular dude. They don't know he's a miracle worker. But Mary had so much respect from their eyes that they said, okay, we're in a desperate situation. We're going to do what he says to do. Sometimes Jesus is going to tell you to do something that makes absolutely no sense to you at all. Like some of you, I guarantee you, by the end of the night, Jesus is going to tell you to do something crazy. And you're going to be like, eh, just do it. That, that was a bonus. Verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants would draw the water to you, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So Jesus changes the water into wine. Now here's the thing. Isn't it true that Jesus could have just went bang and zapped the thing full of, full of, full of wine? Could he have done that? Yeah, I think he could have done that. Jesus has done long-distance healings before. If he wanted uh, the thing to turn into wine, he could have just said, Alakazam, and boom, he'd have had a bunch of wine. What is the point of Jesus telling these guys, dump the water in, draw some out, bring it to the mouth of the feast? What is the point of that? Here's the point, very simply. When God works miracles in the life, this is so important. When God works miracles in the lives of people, he usually uses us to cooperate with him. 
He usually uses us to cooperate with his miracle. God very rarely likes to work by himself. Even in creation, God was not working by himself. If you go to Genesis 1, you keep hearing God say, let us, let us, let us. God likes to do things on a team. So if a miracle needs to happen, nine times out of ten, he's going to use one of us to do it. And so we are, are being invited into this thing. Now, what is the significance of Jesus turning the water into wine? Well, on one hand, we realize something about the personality of Jesus, which is he likes to see people have fun. Like, the majority of people, and you, you saw this at the bottom of the text where it says, only the people who drew the water knew that he turned it into wine. So it's not like Jesus said, all right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to have a line of people. You guys are going to say that I'm the Messiah, or you're going to say that I'm God, and then I'll give you some of this wine. That's not what happened. Those people began drinking the wine with zero knowledge of the fact that Jesus did that for them. You go, man, that's really sad all this. Do you realize every moment of your life, that you've ever enjoyed anything, it's because Jesus made that possible. Ice cream, pizza, friendship, everything that you have ever had, that you have enjoyed, has come from the hand of Christ. And you haven't recognized it for the vast majority of your life. As a matter of fact, all those good things have come from the hand of Christ. And what have we done with them? Like, for example, wine, as we've read in the scripture, is designed to make the heart of man glad. Isn't that true? That's what the scripture says. Did you know that was in the Bible? God gave us wine to make us happy. What do we do with the wine and the alcohol that Jesus has given us? Instead of using it for the intended purpose, we take it and we abuse it and destroy ourselves and the people around us with it. Isn't that true? So here's what happens. Jesus wants us glad, he wants us happy, and he gives us all these good gifts, and then the enemy comes and says, hey, you, you shouldn't have any limitations to these good gifts. You should be able to use them to the extreme, because God is a giant killjoy. He gave you wine, and then he tells you you can only drink so much. What a killjoy. This is what the devil does. And he convinces us that God hates our happiness, and he convinces us that all the good things that he's given us are, are to make us depressed, which doesn't make any sense. And then we go and abuse it and end up destroying people. And then when our lives are ruined, who do we blame? How could you let this happen to me? So these people are enjoying the wine that Jesus created, and they have no idea who it came from. Now this tells me something about the humility of Christ. How many times do you do something, and the only reason you do it is because you want recognition? You go, no, no, I just do things out of the kindness of my heart. How many times have you said, that person didn't even thank me? Well, why do they need to thank you? Like, why do you need that validation from them that you did a good thing? Like, 
do you realize the majority of, of, of times that God does millions of good things for us without a single word? Even as Christians, most of the time, God is completely forgotten. But here you are. You do one good thing out of the kindness of your heart, and people don't thank you, and you lose your mind. You know, so-and-so is so ungrateful. Like you? Like you wake up every day freaking out, going, God, you're so good to me. You gave me friends. You gave me sneakers. You gave me legs. You know, this summer, I was out of commission because my legs were all destroyed. And the Lord said to me, those legs were a gift to you for all those 33 years, weren't they? I said, yeah. He said, how many times have you ever thanked me for your legs after a run? Ever. But then somebody doesn't thank you for whatever, and you go crazy. You see, when you truly, truly love somebody, watch this. When you truly, truly love somebody, sometimes the biggest thanks that you can get is the fact that they're enjoying what you gave them. You see, this is, so I don't want you guys to feel bad about the fact that you don't thank God. God understands your need and weakness. But if you spend the majority of your life enjoying God's good things, you know, to God, sometimes just the very fact that you're enjoying something pleases his heart. When you love someone and you do something to them out of love, this is how you can gauge how much love you have in your heart when you do something good for somebody. How much thanks do you mean? See, if you, if when we thank God, it's not because He means it, it's because it is the accumulation of the celebration. It's for God, another reason to celebrate. Oh, I did something good for them, and they recognize it. Let's celebrate more. But for you, when a person doesn't thank you, and you get really salty and sour, you got to check your heart. Did you do it only for the love of that other person? This is one of my life goals. And I'm going to achieve it one day on my bucket list. To do one thing for a person only for the sake of God and that other person. Like, you want to analyze yourself and go, man, have I ever done that? Just done one good thing for a person only for the sake of their joy and God's joy. Jesus shows us the heart of God. A God who will make sure that the party stays lively, make sure that there's enough wanting to go around and make it so that not everybody has to recognize that he did it. When we say that Jesus is God, we are saying that we worship a humble God. Which to me is still a crazy thought that our God is humble. So he called the master of the feast, called the bridegroom, and he said to him, so now, imagine you're the bridegroom, right? Because you still don't know that this miracle has happened. So the master of the feast calls you over, and you're like, oh, man, here he goes. He's going to say that I'm terrible, and I don't know anything, and I miscalculated the wine, and ugh. Everyone serves a good wine first. Now watch this. This guy is talking about God. He doesn't even know. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. You know what this means? When he says drunk freely, it means that the people were putting them back. And so after the people put them back, then you put the bad wine in because you won't be able to tell the difference. I mean, this is good strategy. You'll wait till you got some, till you're a little, uh, whatever. 
because I'm getting farted, so I don't want to incriminate myself. But you've enjoyed the wine, and they were going to give you the, the nasty wine, and you won't know the difference. But the guy says, man, you have kept the best till now. This is the first of his signs. Look, see, I didn't say here, but it says signs. This is pointing to something. What is this pointing to? Here's what this is pointing to. God saved the best until the last. The Old Testament was good wine. It was good. But you know what? It wasn't really wine. It was water. The emphasis on the Old Testament was about making sure you're cleansed and you're pure. And you're obsessed with being cleansed and pure. Water jars. Water, water, water. Purification. The emphasis on water is about cleansing in those jars. What is the emphasis on the wine? Celebration. What does this tell us? That in this age, our permanent disposition, the thing that we should be more obsessed about than being cleansed, is celebrating. How can we celebrate? That is the emphasis of God in the New Testament. You go, well, you say purification isn't important? Of course it's important, but here's what I'm saying. In the Old Testament, they had no cross to look back on to know that they were purified once and for all. They didn't have Jesus dying for them in the Old Testament. So they were obsessed constantly with purifying themselves because that's what they felt they had to do to be right with God. Now in the New Testament, because of what Christ has done, the question of our purification is settled. All your sin, all your nastiness, all your ungratefulness, all of your using God's good gifts to destroy yourself and others, all of that, as Chloe told us, is piled on Jesus, and you already paid for that in AD 33. So that's done. The question of am I pure before God, if you trust Jesus, is finished. What is the purpose by which God purified you? So he could celebrate with you. That's the point of turning water into wine. The point is, we're going to go from being obsessed with our purity to being obsessed with how can I wake up today and celebrate my life with God? You say, I don't know, Andrew, that's you, you read too much. What did Paul say the kingdom of God was? Righteousness, peace, and what? Joy in the Holy Spirit. This is all through the New Testament. The emphasis of Christian people should be how can we express the joy of the Holy Spirit every single day? How can we celebrate every single day? Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus commands us to celebrate with what? Bread and what? Wine. This is why we use literal wine in communion itself. We don't use grape juice. We use wine, because wine is about making the heart of man glad. Don't you realize that when we take communion together, we have the bread, we have the wine. The bread represents his broken body. The wine represents his shed blood. Don't you realize what you're doing? On the one hand, we're saying our sins did this to Jesus. But on the other hand, we're saying we are celebrating because we've been cleansed. And now we have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us the joy of the Lord. So this guy is talking about God and he doesn't realize it. 
Purification is good. That's the old one. That's the old way. And being purified is good. But the end game of purification is celebration. I mean, think this through. The entire thing, Christianity, is about a wedding. Now, if you just got done playing two hours of basketball and you're rolling around and you're sweaty and you're nasty, you can't come to the wedding because you smell. There's no amount of alcohol that's going to cover that. You smell. Take a shower, get some clean clothes, and then come party. You see, the point of purification is so that you can celebrate. That's the entire point. Everything is leading up to a wedding. The marriage between God and his people. And what, what day did this happen on, by the way? The third day. We can't escape this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ solidifies both things. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead solidifies that one, God accepts our purification, and two, watch this, it ensures that the life of the party is going to be there. Now, I don't know if you've ever partied, but in every party, there is somebody who, if that person isn't there, the party's whack. Everybody knows this. Isn't that true? Yo, this party's whack, yo. So-and-so isn't here. The resurrection ensures that the life, the literal life of the party is going to be there, namely Jesus. These people thought that Jesus was so cool in his humanity, undercover, that they wanted him at the party. Do you have any idea what type of party that's going to be when we see Jesus in his fullness, in his celebratory fullness? You're going to, this is good, we're going to party forever. Jesus is literally the life of the party. And this is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. An unbeliever doesn't want to go to hell because it sounds like a terrible place to be. But they would, be, they would feel fine in heaven if Jesus wasn't there. This is how you know you're a believer and unbeliever. You're cool with going to heaven because your, your, your aunt Susie's going to be there, your puppy's going to be there. Maybe. And you, you're not worried that it's going to be a whack party because Jesus is not going to be there. That means you're not going to heaven. Like if you could picture heaven and Jesus is not at the center of the party, you're not going to the party. Heaven is only for people that recognize that Jesus is literally the life of the party. What does the scripture say? In him was what? Life. Anytime you've ever tried to pursue any joy or happiness, you have been pursuing it and you don't even know. The entire reason human beings have parties is because we're trying to get to that one ultimate one, which is why you keep doing it over and over again. When you wake up the next day and go, oh, I'm never going to do this again. Friday, okay. Because all of us are trying to get to that one event. The resurrection ensures us, one, that the event is going to happen because the life is going to be there. And two, the sacrifice of Christ got us the access we need to get in as clean participants. Jesus did this at Canaan Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Mary was right. Jesus found a way to do the miracle, 
He found a way to do it without the entire party knowing. He found a way to do it that people could be happy without having to come back and thank him for everything. But he also found a way to do it so that his little band of disciples could see his glory. Here's the last thing I'll say to you. It says his disciples believed in him. Now, all through the Gospel of John, these poor guys, they go up and down between belief and unbelief. Belief and unbelief. Even in chapter 16, they go, now we believe! Jesus is like, are you kidding me? I thought you said you believe in chapter 2. Here's what happens. Jesus does this stuff that's unrecognized to the world, but then he shows us. So when you see God's goodness to other people, take time and realize that Jesus did it. Why? This will increase your faith. Don't look at the world the way that everybody else looks at the world. Look at it through the eyes of gratitude. Look at every good thing that Jesus has done in the life of your friends as coming from the hand of Christ, because that is his glory. It says they saw his glory. What is Jesus' glory in this passage? The fact that he kept the party going. So you can literally see the glory of God in his goodness to your friends, in his goodness to your family. And here's the thing, this is, we talked about having secrets between you and God. We talked about that on Saturday. This was a secret between the disciples and Christ that nobody else in the party understood. So when you're going through your day and you see God's hand, you don't have to make a big deal out of standing on the rooftop and go, God gave you that car, why are you so ungrateful? Just you and Jesus say, Jesus, I'm seeing your glory here. Seeing your glory. You know, we got kids running around right now. Aren't you seeing the glory of God and his goodness to these mothers that give them children? You see, you have those secret moments of glory and worship when you have a thankful heart. And he is manifesting himself to you. Jesus is, now watch this, Jesus' gifts to the people around you are his gift to you. Because he's showing you his glory and giving you an opportunity for you to recognize it if the whole world doesn't recognize it. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. God, thank you for your personality. Jesus, I pray for my friends, God, that you would continue to provide these big things and little things. God, help us to see the big picture. Help us to understand the picture that you have for us, God. Give us submissive hearts that will agree with anything you say and do anything you tell us to do, God, whether we believe in you or not. God, thank you for all my friends. Bring us all home safe. And God, show us your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Cell 53, proclaiming the kingdom of God for the sake of the city. For more resources, visit cell53.com.